Mr. Chairman and committee members, thank you for the opportunity to present the results of my research on the greenhouse effect, which has been carried out with my colleagues at the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies. I would like to draw three main conclusions. Number one, the Earth is warmer in 1988 than at any time in the history of instrumental measurements. Number two, the global warming is now large enough that we can ascribe with a high degree of confidence a cause and effect relationship to the greenhouse effect. And number three, our computer climate simulations indicate that the greenhouse effect is already large enough to begin to affect the probability of extreme events such as summer heat waves. These are the words of Dr. James Hansen, director of the National Aeronautics and Space Administration's Goddard Institute for Space Studies, presenting his opening statement to the U.S. Senate Committee on Energy and Natural Resources in 1988. Dr. Hansen would go on to present climate science data that he and his colleagues collected at the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, aka NASA. At the time, Hansen's audience was United States Senator, serving on a long-standing committee with jurisdiction over matters of energy, mineral resources, and land use. But Hansen would also testify before a U.S. House committee a few weeks later, and to a different government committee the next year. While Hansen was far from the first person to talk about global warming or present research on the effect, his testimonial to the Senate committee was one of the first instances of climate change grabbing widespread attention. The following day, Hansen's research was discussed on the front page of the New York Times. With the amount of government and media attention Hansen's testimony received, the term global warming entered the mainstream vocabulary. It's been over 30 years since Hansen's testimony, and the issue of global warming has come to dominate both public policy and private citizens' concerns. At the same time, climate science communication has expanded dramatically, regularly making headlines and becoming commonplace in the public dialogue. Everyone knows what CO2 equivalent means now, right? As climate science communication has increased, the language used to communicate the crisis has also evolved. In the opening speech we shared, Hansen primarily refers to the concept of global warming. Today, the term climate change is used to communicate the changes that are happening to our planet. And even more recently, some institutions have started to adopt more urgent terminology. Terms like climate crisis and climate emergency. The language that we use to communicate climate change is critical to the message we want to convey. Language affects the way information is perceived and the emotions it can evoke. As Canadian communication theorist Marshall McLuhan said, the medium is the message. This week, we trace the evolution of climate change language and how to best communicate the climate crisis. From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Sonic Patel and I am joined by Elizabeth Dowdell. We'll be your hosts for the next half hour of environmental news and storytelling. Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge that this episode was produced in Treaty 6 territory, 
in a Miskwachi, Wisconsin, Beaver Hills House, or so-called Edmonton. We are broadcasting from unrecognized Papaschase Cree territory. The Papaschase Cree were displaced following consistent efforts from local officials like Frank Oliver to discredit the legitimacy of their treaty right to this territory. The Papaschase people were placed in Reserve Number 136, now Southeast Edmonton, where I live and where this episode was written. Here, the Papaschase people faced starvation as the government failed to meet their treaty obligations, and many lost treaty status after being forced to accept scrip. The reserve land was illegitimately stripped from the Papaschase people by the federal government, who sold this land at auction. Not confined to history, Treaty 6 is also the present homelands of many First Peoples who build their lives here, pursue livelihoods, and gather together, including Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, and Dene. In this episode, we're talking about communicating information about the climate crisis. Wherever you're listening from, we ask you to think about the news and stories that inform your understanding of the world around you and the land you live on. Whose narratives do you hear? And just as importantly, whose are missing? It's a theme that came up when I talked to Sean Holman, professor of journalism at Mount Royal University. Here's Sean. I think about the experiences that Indigenous communities have already had with climate change. I think about the experiences that marginalized communities have already had with climate change. And I think about how little that seems to have mattered to many Canadians and many people around the world. And that speaks to profound lack of empathy in our society and a profound lack of caring for the experiences of others. It is a symptom of a larger problem, much greater problem. And I wish we could find a way past it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, we don't know, for example, right, that the hailstorm that happened in Calgary and affected the North so severely was as a direct result of climate change. What we do know is that this kind of extreme weather is going to be more frequent as a result of climate change. This was a disaster that caused millions of dollars in damage. And because it happened in a community that is largely people of color, largely marginalized communities, including immigrants and refugees, it wasn't the kind of front page news that it should have been. And that's a failure, right? That is a profound failure. It's a failure of media, and it's a failure of society. We'll hear more from Sean Holman in a little bit as we delve further into the challenges with climate change reporting. But first, we wanted to start by talking about some of the trends we've noticed in climate change language over the last couple decades. 
When I was young in the 2000s, I distinctly remember that anthropogenic impacts on the climate were mostly referred to as global warming. By the time I was in high school in the early 2010s, I noticed that the terminology had changed and climate change was the term I was most commonly hearing. Now, I have been exposed to a broad new range of phrases for climate change. What do you think, Liz? Sound kind of similar to your experience? Global warming was definitely the phrase that I remember from my childhood in the 90s. Um, by the time I was in sort of middle school, high school, and yeah, climate change was completely the norm. That was the phrase being used. Today, you know, we hear about the climate crisis and the climate emergency, but I think they feel really right. Like to me, I like to use climate crisis whenever I'm, you know, talking about our planet's environmental state. And then there are other terms, again, from my like university experience that stick with me, things like solastalgia, which is kind of this feeling of like homesickness for an environment or a planet that we don't really have anymore. Uh, terms like climate grief, climate anxiety, you know, I talk about these the other day, I told Sonic how high my climate grief and anxiety was right now. Yeah, those, those terms you mentioned, I think are also interesting to me, because that's like beyond just the evolution of the language that defines climate change, that like expansion of climate language into other fields, and how it creeps into like, it feels like almost every single thing that is part of my life. And you know, I, I have regular anxiety, and I have climate anxiety now. Um, <laughs> and so I think that's also like an interesting sort of evolution of the language, not just the terms within that field changing, but also that field sort of starting to encompass very justifiably all the other aspects of the world around us that we are, you know, seeing and interpreting. Language is dynamic and always changing. Yet climate change and environmental terminology has exploded across public consciousness and vocabulary over a short period of time. This week, we wanted to take a look at where some of the terms that define the climate crisis came from. These are loaded terms that evoke powerful and specific responses from their target audience. The way science communicators employ these terms plays an important role in how they are received. Certain climate science and media institutions have acknowledged the power of language, and made efforts to be conscious in their communications. Earlier this year, popular science magazine Scientific American, the oldest continuously published monthly magazine in the United States, announced it would start using the term climate emergency in their media coverage. Scientific American justified the change by citing a 2021 study in which 11,000 scientists from 153 countries signed a report agreeing that the world is facing a climate emergency that threatens the biosphere and humanity. But why does this matter? Why are the terms that climate communicators use important? Well, words have meaning. In fact, they wrote a book about it. But more than a literal meaning, the language that we choose to employ evokes certain responses and emotions. And when it comes to climate action, we need lots of people and a handful of multinational corporations to feel strongly compelled to change their behavior. In a CBC article, University of Alberta psychology professor Chris Westbury, who researches the cognitive structure and neurological underpinnings of language, discussed how something as small as changing a few words can impact how the reader thinks about that issue. Westbury suspects that more negative terms like crisis and emergency can make people think of climate change negatively and presumably motivate them to act. 
neuroanalytics company Spark Neuro took the speculation a little further and tested how people respond to different climate terms. The terms that elicited the strongest reactions were climate crisis and environmental destruction. The terms global warming and climate change were at the bottom of the list in terms of emotional response. And that makes sense. The words crisis and destruction are strong terms, ones that imply a serious threat. However, Spark Neuro warns that emotional language can be a double-edged sword. The strong emotional response to the term environmental destruction, especially among respondents that identified as Republican, may actually be too strong and discourage people from pursuing climate action. But as Spark Neuro and other institutions pointed out, the most commonly used descriptors are still global warming and climate change. Journalistresource.org states that journalists often use the terms global warming and climate change interchangeably, but the terms are not identical. Global warming refers to the rising average temperatures on the planet. Climate change refers to long-term changes to the climate of the planet, including temperature, but also things like precipitation and wind patterns. The first academic appearance of the phrase climate change was in a 1956 paper by Gilbert Ploss, while global warming wasn't coined until 1975, when Wally Broker published a paper called Climate Change. Are we on the brink of a pronounced global warming? While climate change and global warming entered the academic lexicon at the same time, global warming managed to show up in public conversation a lot more. In a 2014 study, a team of researchers found that Americans were more likely to use the term global warming over the time period of 2004 to 2014. One of the big reasons the public picked up on global warming was the way it was prominently used in the Hansen testimony, a snippet of which we read at the opening of the show. Another big, high-profile bump to the term global warming was in 2006, with the release of incredibly popular documentary, An Inconvenient Truth. If you look at the 10 hottest years ever measured, they've all occurred in the last 14 years, and the hottest of all was 2005. An Inconvenient Truth follows former Vice President Al Gore as he tries to educate the American public about global warming. For many, the documentary was the first time they became aware of human impacts on the climate. And the term the filmmakers used? Global warming. So while academics were using both climate change and global warming for their respective and different meanings, the mass media, and subsequently the public, were on the global warming train which, if there was a global warming train, would presumably be coal-powered. You're listening to Terra Informa on CJSR 88.5 FM. This week, we're talking about the words that have defined climate change communication, how they've changed, and why it matters. We've covered the origins of the terms global warming and climate change, and how different terms can elicit different emotional responses. Now, let's hear about a deliberate effort to obscure the terms defining the crisis. In 2002, Republican strategist Frank Luntz felt that the environment was the weakest domestic issue for then-President George Bush. Luntz wrote a pretty infamous memo shaping the new direction of environmental communications from the Republican Party and the White House. 
among the tactics promoted by Luntz was challenging the scientific evidence on climate change, a tactic which is somehow still, 19 years later, pretty gosh darn effective. But Luntz also advised the Republican Party to abandon the phrase global warming in favor of the term climate change. Luntz believed that global warming was a more threatening term than climate change and therefore more likely to make people believe that it was an issue than needed addressing, which the Bush administration was unwilling to address, which you can see for yourself if you refer to the Kyoto Protocol. In the 2014 study we mentioned before, the researchers analyzed a 2013 survey and noted a similar trend to Luntz. People were more likely to say that global warming was a very bad thing. Survey participants associated global warming with extreme weather and melting ice and are actually more confident that global warming is happening than climate change and are more worried about global warming harming them, their family, and future generations. The paper ends by stating that global warming and climate change are very much not synonyms. Each term is received separately and activates different beliefs and feelings. The authors note scientists are more likely to use climate change as a technically more accurate term, yet climate change appears to reduce engagement on climate change issues. And in a world where climate action has largely been inadequate, a lack of public awareness and concern is a big problem. This line of thinking is the reason some media institutions have chosen to adopt the language of climate emergency and crisis. Still, scientists are likely to be averse to choosing language based around evoking emotions. Their goal is to clearly communicate information based on evidence and not to inspire collective action. Some media institutions also did not want to adopt what they considered provocative language. The CBC refused to change their language guidelines, claiming that strong language implies advocacy, which, they argue, is not the role of journalists. If adopting new language advocates for accelerated climate action, then doesn't not adopting new language inherently advocate for the status quo? Some advocates of adopting new climate language agree. Sean Holman wrote an open letter to journalist institutions in Canada. In it, he highlights a failure of Canadian news media to adequately cover climate crisis news and calls upon these institutions to prominently place and cover climate change news. Holman believes that the news media needs to hold public and private institutions to account for their actions and inactions on climate change. I reached out to Sean to talk about what is missing in climate crisis communication and how to better communicate the threat of a changing climate and the need for climate action. Language can be helpful. It can be so helpful. It can be so important but it is not the only thing. And I do sometimes worry that by focusing on this one thing, we lose sight of all the other best practices that can be put in place to ensure that Canadians and to ensure that our fellow citizens around the world are making better decisions when it comes to climate change policy that are reflective of the scientific evidence associated with the severity of this threat. I asked Sean how he thinks climate change communication has changed based on his experience as a professor of journalism. I think what we can say is that the frequency of that coverage is increasing. 
we are also seeing that some media organizations are more willing to use strong language than others. And I would also say that we are seeing more coverage of the intersectional impacts of climate change than we have in the past. Where I think we're still not doing great is we are not telling the broader human story of climate change. Climate change is something that's going to affect every single one of us. It is something that as a result is going to affect every single beat that the news media covers. And yet we are not really seeing that kind of coverage in the media yet. And indeed, Greta Thunberg has actually complained about this. We're not hearing those human stories, lives and livelihoods being lost. And it's really those stories, I think, that are the most important to tell right now. Now is the time to humanize what has too often been pigeonholed as an environmental story. I think that is also reflexive of how so many of us in society, both professionally and personally, have found ourselves in sort of hermetically sealed silos. We don't talk to one another and we don't share our expertise. And that expertise does not stretch across multiple professions and multiple fields. We talked about the terms that have defined climate change. Here, Sean, on the challenges of finding good climate language. I think the first challenge is the fact that some people feel that stronger language, such as the terms climate crisis, such as the terms climate emergency, such as the term global heating, have a whiff of advocacy about them, are not objective terms. And I think that is a feeling that scientists feel. And I think that's a feeling that journalists feel. Because both professions, to an extent, are based on the importance of objectivity and being unbiased. But I think that's not the only challenge we face around language. The other challenge is the fact that climate change and global warming are phenomena that have no precedent in our time. So does it look like past emergencies? Does it look like past crises? To an extent it does, but to an extent it doesn't either. To the extent that it doesn't, it's because it's a slow moving phenomena in some ways, although we are certainly seeing uh, climate change happen quite rapidly on the other hand as well. But we don't really have good language to describe this thing that is happening to our world. So we're searching for past precedents. We're searching 
for past uses of language. And we've arrived on climate crisis and climate emergency as the best approximations. We wanted to get Sean's opinion on an idea that the Spark Neuro study discussed. Are some terms actually too evocative? Can strong language really turn people off of climate action? I think there's certainly a possibility of that. And I think there's certainly a possibility that individuals could tune out as as a result. But where I see the most risk, I think, is if we use those terms without being clear about what Canadians and what other citizens of the world can do to actually address climate change and global warming. There is a real failure in the news media to pair coverage of climate change with the solutions to climate change and specifically to solutions that we can take in our day-to-day lives. There's a very big tendency, I think, to focus, especially in the environmental movement, on systemic changes. And while I appreciate the need to do so, and while I appreciate the importance of doing so, to not give readers, to not give viewers, to not give listeners information as part of climate change coverage about what they can do in their day-to-day lives to feel some sense of control and some sense of certainty over this very uncontrollable and very uncertain situation is counterproductive. So Sean's takeaway is that climate language is important and it has a role to play in communicating the climate crisis. But it's a smaller issue within the bigger picture. How often we talk about it? How much do we express how it is and will affect us and our fellow people? And what can we do to mitigate the worst of these impacts? I'll leave you with one last clip from Sean Holman, one where he talks about something else that's missing in climate communication. We have really failed, really failed as a society to talk to one another about climate change. We have really failed as a society to talk together about the experiences of climate change. We are all hermetically sealed. In some ways that more than anything else is the thing that is contributing to the disaster that is looming on the horizon that is not already facing us. Climate change awareness and communication has exploded since the terms were introduced half a century ago. In this time, there have been many terms used, from global warming to climate change to ecological emergency. Sometimes the terms used have been politically motivated, intended to have a calming or dampening effect on the people who hear or listen to them. Other terms have been chosen because they heighten our alarm level and they convey an urgent and emotional message. Climate change communicators need to understand that the terms they choose are important. The words we see and hear 
are part of a large and necessary effort to engage public and private forces with an issue that has largely failed to elicit the concern it needs and deserves. Language is a powerful tool. As much as some communicators would like to dissociate the emotional response from the informational value of language, we need to consider it. In the effort to be objective, we all, as both communicators and audiences, cannot ignore the connotation and emotional power that language inherently holds. A lack of climate action is, at least somewhat, to blame on poor communication. Communication that has failed to convey the threat of climate change and the need for action, especially at an emotional and human level. At the end of the day, climate change is a crisis. It is an emergency. And that needs to be reflected, not just in our words, but in our coverage, in our attention, and especially in our action. This has been Sonic Patel. And Elizabeth Dowdell. Thanks for listening. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, and all our content is created by a team of volunteers. A big thank you to Sean Holman for his insight in this episode. This episode was written by Sonic Patel and produced by Elizabeth Odell and Jacinta Brion-Geza. You can reach us for comments or questions via email, Terra at CJSR.com, or message us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Terra Informa. For previous episodes, check out our website, TerraInforma.ca. Catch you next week, right here on Terra Informa.